We're not called to be in agreement with everyone. What we are called to is, as much as is possible, to live in peace with everyone. As much as is possible. Of course, we know that there are many martyrs for the gospel still today, and why is that? It's for the simple truth that the gospel is the greatest news in the world, and they will not stop sharing it. We live in a hopeless world. We live in a confused world. We live in a world where people don't even know what men and women are. It's because they've abandoned any moral standard. But the Bible gives us the moral standard to cling to. And if people only knew the mighty power of God, they would follow him because there's no greater joy than to walk in the truth of the Lord Jesus. If you have your Bibles with you, if you could turn to the book of Acts, chapter 23, we will begin with the first verse of that chapter. Um, And I'm really uh, excited to dig in with you today. We're going to be covering the first 11 verses. I think what I will do is I will read the passage in its entirety, and then we'll open in a word of prayer. This is Paul before the Sanhedrin, the council, and here's what it says. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? And when they stood by, he said, Revilest thou God's high priest. Then said Paul, I wish not, brethren, that it was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And when he had said, when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel have spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there arose a great dissension, The chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and bring him into the castle. And that night following, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness of me at Rome. 
Let's open in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would be with my faltering voice today, that you would give it strength, and that you would be honored and glorified in what we have to share today, and that we would come away from this time, change people, and that you would get the honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Paul, as you know, looks for every opportunity to share the gospel. He has this opportunity before the council because he was already taken out of one riotous situation. And I guess you could say in a way, this is kind of out of the frying pan and into the fire. The whole pattern that we have seen in the book of Acts is that God does a mighty work within his church and then trouble ensues. And God does the mighty work in his church and trouble ensues and so on and so forth. And so I think that's why Jesus told his disciples, in this world you may have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Because he knew that trouble would be part of the believer's life. So... Let's look at the first point of the message today. As we see Paul before the council, Paul is going to testify to a clear conscience, and he's going to be attacked for it. Now, it's interesting in today's day and age that when people try to walk uprightly, they get attacked. Because one of the most famous phrases in our society today is live your truth. Don't let anybody else tell you how to live. Don't conform to, a, to something narrow like Christianity. This is what the world thinks. But just live your truth. And we're going to see um, that as Paul testifies to a clear conscience... That's not going to be an acceptable answer. So, looking at Acts 23, verses 1 and 2. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Um... It's very interesting here that Paul says, I have a good conscience. Good conscience was important to Paul. He used that phrase many times in his epistles. Um, He said he exercised himself always to have a good conscience before God and man. And yet Ananias doesn't like this. Why do we think that is? Well, when people around us are living a life of good conscience and we don't have one, it's going to be convicting to us. So I think that's part of what is going on here. Um, I found this from Jack Arnold. He says that the statement almost seems like bragging on the part of Paul, but it is a very accurate statement about Paul's life 
before and after his conversion to Christ. Throughout his life, he always followed his conscience before God. Even before he became a Christian, he did have a conscience bent towards God. Even the approval of the stoning of Stephen, the imprisonment of Christians, and the signing of death warrants for Christians was done in sincerity towards God, even though he was sincerely wrong. However, Paul thought he was doing right. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. The brash statement, coupled with the fact that he addressed the Sanhedrin with the common term brother and making himself one of them, caused the high priest to think that Paul was showing disrespect and an insolent attitude. Now, I don't think Paul is showing an insolent attitude here because I think that this whole stretch of passage that we've seen is him trying to humbly share the gospel. But I can definitely see how it would be perceived that way by the leaders. Remember, these leaders are all about power. My dad likes to point out the fact that when the leaders were persecuting Christ and then persecuting the Christians after Christ rose and went to heaven, they never denied the resurrection. They never outrightly said he never rose. But what they did say was that we have to figure out something to do about him so that he doesn't steal our popularity away. So their popularity was more important than the right thing. Their popularity was more important than the truth. Even though Jesus said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So let's look by way of cross-reference, if a gentleman can um, look these up for me, and if you find it, stand and read it. First one is 2 Timothy 1.3. 2 Timothy 1.3. Paul saying here, I thank God who I serve with a clear conscience. Now, does this mean that Paul did everything right? No, it doesn't. But what it does mean is that Paul kept short accounts with God. What it does mean is that when Paul did the wrong thing, he had an attitude of repentance toward God and others. It means that he made sure that he always made things right when he was brought under conviction of sin. Remember what he said when he was ultimately, for the first time, brought under conviction of sin on the Damascus Road. He fell off his high horse, probably quite literally, and his first word to Jesus, upon Jesus identifying himself to him, is, what would you have me to do? I think this is a problem with the way we often present the gospel, is that often we present it for what it offers us. And yes, indeed, it offers us everything. It offers us life. It offers us the chance at redemption. There's nothing we can bring to the table. But it's significant to me that Paul's first question upon conversion is, what would you have me to do? Because he would write in Ephesians, 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for works that he did before ordained for us, that we should walk in them. So Paul knew immediately, instinctively, that God had something for him to do. And he was willing to ask the question. 2 Corinthians one twelve. 2 Corinthians one twelve. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world, and more abundantly to you were. So, he talks about a clear conscience and having a conversation in the world that showed the simplicity of God's truth. You know, a lot of times we might like to look smart by using big words. You know, I could come up here every time I preach with a whole list of the Greek words and their meanings all throughout the text. But... What's, not, what's important is not me sounding smart or me looking good to you. My, what's important is that I share the truth and that I share the gospel with power, the power of the Holy Spirit. So in our second section of our message today, Paul is going to issue an apology. Um, and he really shows us how to deal with authorities. Because we all have authorities, whether personal authorities or whether government authorities that we disagree with, sometimes vehemently and justifiably so. We're not called to be in agreement with everyone. What we are called to is, as much as is possible, to live in peace with everyone, as much as is possible. Of course, we know that there are many martyrs for the gospel still today. And why is that? It's for the simple truth that the gospel is the greatest news in the world and they will not stop sharing it. We live in a hopeless world. We live in a confused world. We live in a world where people don't even know what men and women are. It's because they've abandoned any moral standard. But the Bible gives us the moral standard to cling to. And if people only knew the mighty power of God, they would follow him because there's no greater joy than to walk in the truth of the Lord Jesus. So Paul is going to issue an apology here. It says, Then Paul said unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? And they that stood by said, Revilest thou the high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that it was the high priest. For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Now, there's a couple of theories about this. One is, that Paul knew that this was the high priest. He said it anyway, and then apologized, because he's also pointing out here that the high priest was wrong because you shouldn't strike a fellow Jew. 
that was in the law, as we will read later. And there's another theory that says that, you know, there's an epistle that says, these things I write in my own hand, because most of his letters he would have dictated to Timothy or another servant. But at the end of one of his epistles, he writes these things, I write in large letters with my own hand. And so the so the supposition is that he had poor eyesight and that perhaps that was the thorn in the flesh that Satan used to buffet him. And so he wouldn't know, he wouldn't identify who the high priest was. My guess and my belief, based on my study, is that he simply didn't know because he hadn't been in Jerusalem for 20 plus years and he was not aware of what the high priest looked like even if he knew the high priest by name how many of us if we hadn't seen somebody in 20 years would say I don't really recognize that person now I'm pretty recognizable because I ride around in a wheelchair um, but for some people it might not be that easy. But for whatever reason, he makes a, a, a statement lashing out against the high priest for having him socked in the mouth. And if there's anybody here in this room that would have a different response, I, I'd like to talk to you afterwards because I would like to know how you would come to that. But our natural response would be to lash out if someone cold cocked us in the face. If we, if we were not knocked unconscious, that is. Um, but I think you notice Paul's immediate contrition as he realizes that this is the high priest. Somebody says, did you realize this is the high priest? And then Paul said, I, I was not, brethren, for that it was the high priest, for it is written... Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Paul, do you think Paul's opinion changed? Do you think he suddenly uh, thought that this guy was not a whited wall? Uh, No, I don't think that. I think he sensed this guy's character and he continued to believe that. But he said, in respect to the position that this person holds... I should not have said that. I should not speak evil of the Lord's high priest. Who does this remind us of? It reminds me of David before he became king. He went to Paul's camp. He stole, I think, a a spear or a jug. He cut off a part of his garment while he was in the, the cave. He had all these opportunities to slay Paul, and ta- or slay Saul, and take the kingdom from him early. And David said, "I will not lift up my hand against the Lord's anointed." And David even goes further because when he finds out that Saul is dead, he grieves for him, even though for much of their life together, they were enemies, and David was on the run from it. Can you imagine grieving someone from whom you are on the run for the better part of 
your lives together. But that was David, a man after God's own heart. And so, Paul issues his apology. He gives us a lesson here. He shows us how to treat authority. It always humbles and amazes me that Daniel in the Old Testament served not one, not two, but four pagan kings and had their respect and admiration. As a matter of fact, the biggest reason that he was thrown in the lion's den was because he was the head ruler over all the rulers and they were jealous of him. And they were looking for ways to besmirch his reputation and they could not find any. So they made up a law that they knew that he wouldn't follow so that they could nail him. Isn't it wonderful to realize that he had a reputation that was so good that they knew they could nail him if they changed the law? That's an interesting thought. So let's look at what I referred to a few minutes ago. In Exodus, I want to look at this passage. Um, Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight. So um, this is this is Paul um, for realizing this passage um, that he should not attack the ruler of his people. Um, but William Barclay points out that when the high priest ordered Paul to be struck, he himself was transgressing the law, which said. He who strikes the cheek of an Israelite strikes, as it were, the glory of God. And so both of those things are worth pointing out. So our third section here is the council divided. Now, Paul is standing here. He wanted to give a testimony I'm sure, to this body. But he's beginning to realize that they're not going to listen. And I'm reminded of what Jesus said when he said, do not cast your pearls before swine. So what what Paul said, what Paul does, helps him to engender some support. Um, look at the, look at verses 6 to 9 with me. Verses 6 to 9 But when Paul perceived that the one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, But the Pharisees confessed both. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' parts arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So we have a situation here where 
Paul sees these two separate factions fighting against him, and he actually sets them against one another because he says, I'm on trial because of the resurrection of Christ. And we see once again how anger undoes a situation. We've talked about this a lot because the book of Acts has a lot of riots in it, um, which anybody that says the Bible is not an interesting read just needs to start reading it because there's some very interesting stories in here. But we've talked a few times about how anger can escalate to the point of being out of control. And Paul's already been beaten by one mob and rescued. And now he's about to be in the middle of another tussle. Um, And again, notice that all of these conflicts that Paul gets in are because he refuses to keep his mouth shut. I think we have this modern view sometimes in Christianity today that my Christian faith is private and if I keep my head down until Jesus comes back then I won't have to suffer any persecution I won't have to have anybody think ill of me Um, but you know what Jesus said about that he said woe to you when all men speak well of you does that mean we should go out of our way to do insensitive and obnoxious things uh, in order to get people not to speak well of us? No. Because we just talked about how it's incumbent upon us to try to live at peace with everyone if we can. But it also means that we can't be afraid of sharing the truth. On Precept Austin... I found this about Paul's um, speaking to the council. It says, I am on trial means being judged for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. He is correct. The foundation of the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is alive and will one day raise the dead. The teaching of that hope, the truth, caused a reaction among the leaders and among the Jews. The truth of the resurrection brought derision, division, and defiance in Paul's day, and it still does today. So, dear proclaimer of the gospel, do not be surprised when they put you on trial for telling of the resurrection of the dead. It reminds me of something that Alistair Begg has said. I'm pretty sure it's not original with him. But he says he always tells men who are considering becoming preachers, if you can be anything else, be that. But if you can't help but preach, then you know that you are made to be a preacher. I am called to preach the gospel. And I will do it by God's grace until my dying breath. Because as we sang earlier, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me 
shall plead. His wounds are pleading for me today because he is alive and seated at the right hand of God. God has answered his prayer from John chapter 17 when he says, Restore to me the glory that I had before the world was. We can't even comprehend what it means for the God of the universe to decide to take on a human body, to live 33 perfect years, to be crucified for sins he did not commit, to take the sins of the whole world on him, to have his father turn his face away, and then to rise again the third day. Just as he said, we serve a promise-keeping God. I wonder if we could look at Acts chapter 6, verse 15, Acts 6, 15. I just want to note a parallel here because I find it interesting the wording of the Pharisees who are actually supporting Paul because they say, if a spirit or angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So they had this inkling that Paul was not speaking of his own strength, but was speaking a message that he had been delivered by God or of an angel. So let's look. So if somebody could read Acts chapter 6, verse 15, that would be most appreciated. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. In Acts chapter 4, it says that they knew that Peter and John were not learned men. But when they heard them speak, what does it say? It says they perceived that they had been with Jesus. They perceived Stephen had the face of an angel. Why? Because he spent time in the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. And they hated God so much that they stoned Stephen. It wasn't Stephen that they hated. It was God. It was the truth of God coming out of Stephen's mouth that they hated more than anything else. So as we wrap up today, we have one final section, and that is Acts 23 10 to 11, Paul is rescued and comforted. Paul is rescued once again. Um, if Paul were alive today, maybe someone would tell him that he should write a, a self-help book on the best ways to be rescued because he's been rescued many times in the book of Acts. He was rescued spiritually on the road to Damascus. He was rescued shortly after Damascus by being let down in a basket so he could move freely. He was already rescued from one mob that we just read about recently, and now he's being rescued from a second mob. This was something that Paul had become an expert at, is getting attacked and being rescued. Of course, we know that Paul was not the expert. 
but instead we know that God shows up on time, in time, every time. On time, in time, every time. Let's look at Acts twenty three ten to 11. It says, And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled to pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also in Rome. Now, for most of us, being put in jail would not be considered a rescue. But both of these times that we recently read about where Paul is in a mob, he gets rescued and put in chains. So I guess chains are preferable to beatings, uh, which I would agree with. But Paul is brought into the castle um, and is once again, I'm guessing, left by himself to think. And he's probably like, Lord, what are you doing? And the Lord comes to him. Uh, we don't know if, if this was a still small voice. I tend to tend to believe that because the Lord appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and the Lord um, taught Paul in the desert for three years, um, in the desert of Arabia, that this was a physical appearance. Um, but remember, it says in um, in the account of the road to Damascus, it says that the people with Paul uh, saw the great light but didn't hear any noise. So it's possible that Paul was with guards and they didn't hear this message. But wh- however he manifested, Jesus was there. We know that after Jesus' resurrection, he had a glorified body that could walk through walls and do whatever he wanted. But we see here that Paul is in a very desperate place. And Jesus says, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness of me in Rome. Now, of course, we know by tradition that Rome would be where Paul would lose his head, literally. He would write in Second Timothy that um, he has fought the good fight, he has kept the faith, he has finished the race, and he's ready to be poured out as an offering for Jesus. But isn't it wonderful to know that if we are redeemed and God has called us to himself, that we are invincible until the time that he calls us home. I've had at least three times when I thought that I was going to die. One time I was about nine years old and my brothers were swimming at the YMCA and um, the hot tub was in the back of the room behind the pool and they moved the class to the hot tub and I wanted to go around the pool to be near them and I got too close to the edge of the pool which is ironically something that their teacher warned them about numerous times 
And I drove my wheelchair into the pool at nine years old. And fortunately, the lifeguard saw me and pulled me up to the surface so that I could get air. And my mom instructed him on how to unstrap me from my chair. Because imagine this, not only was I in the water, but I was strapped to a 200-pound electric wheelchair, and I was strapped in like three places. So I truly thought, I was like, Lord... I'm coming home. I had been a believe, I had been a Christian for about four years already at this point. Thanks be to God and my Christian parents. But I was like, Lord, I'm coming home. And then I broke the surface of the water and realized God wasn't done with me yet. And then there was a time when I was going home from a Christmas party for my work several years ago when my brother and I spun my 15-passenger van into traffic and we thought that we were going to get hit. Nobody hit us. We thought we were going to be hit. We thought, I thought maybe it was the end. I said, Lord, I'm ready to go. But it wasn't the end. A third time was when I was still working uh, for Right to Life, the same company that I went to the Christmas party for, I had gotten in this habit of, after I got off work, going over to a coffee shop that was right across the courtyard from my work so that I could wait for my brother to pick me up because he worked a couple hours more, or at least an hour more. And the coffee shop was closed unceremoniously. They were out of business. So I'm sitting there, it's winter, it's cold. I'm sitting there wondering, what am I going to do? So I decided I'm going to drive my wheelchair down Byron Center Avenue in Wyoming, 228th Street, and go to Russ's. And I started down the sidewalk, and I started to get stuck in a snowbank. And I said, this is not going to do. I don't want to get stuck in a snowbank and freeze to death. So I made the ill-advised but best choice at the time to go onto the road and stick to the side of the road and drive down the road till I got to 28th Street and could get to Russ's. And one of the people that saw me out there actually brought me some money and said, I'm sorry you had to go through this. Let me pay for your dinner tonight. But in all three of those cases... I thought I was a goner. But God had other plans. There was also the time that I was hit in a crosswalk in broad daylight when I went on walk. An SUV hit me. Fortunately, he was slowing down and didn't hit me on my service dog side or my dog would have died and I would have been really upset. And I ended up with just mild shoulder pain But all this to say that I'm still here. And it's because God's not finished with me yet. So Jesus is saying to Paul at this point, I'm not finished with you yet. You still have to testify for me in Rome. Now at any time from a human perspective, Paul could have packed it in, said, I'm done, I'm going to retire I'll find a palatial estate where I can 
live out the rest of my days. I'm not going to go to Rome because Caesar will kill me. But you know, when he was writing Philippians, he was in a jail in Rome. And what does it say in the end of Philippians? It says, the saints of Caesar's household greet you. So even after he went to testify to Caesar, he was still sharing the gospel and people were still accepting it. What a wonderful thought to realize that Paul's life was secure as long as God had a plan for him. And it's important for us to realize that as long as God has a plan for us, we are secure in him. There's an old hymn that says, more secure is no one ever than the loved ones of the Savior. So what a wonderful hymn and truth that is. This commander that this passage speaks of was over 1,000 soldiers and he knew what it was to be in dangerous situations. He knew what it was like to lead his men and do battle. He was watching and listening to the proceedings because he had a vested interest in this trial. He was seeking to get to the bottom of all the trouble. He watched as as the tempers flared, the debate escalated, the assembly divided, and the dissension ensued. He watched as Paul was right in the middle of it. Luke tells us that when it reached a danger point, it was a red alert level that the commander feared that Paul would suffer immediate physical damage. And that was from Jack Andrews' Expository Studies, Understanding Acts, Volume 6. But see, Paul, through all this, he's still serving the Lord because he knows he has a job to do. As we close this morning, could someone read for me 2 Timothy 4, 17-18? 2 Timothy 4, 17-18. So Paul is just summarizing uh, that God brought him out of the lion's mouth. I don't think Paul ever faced any physical lions. But he brought him out of his enemies' mouths because he had a plan for Paul. And he said, God is going to keep me safe and deliver me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Because that's the nature of of our God. That is the truth of our God that we serve. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But that also means that in order to be present with the Lord, we have to know the Lord. In order to know the Lord, we need to accept His Son, the Lord Jesus, as our personal Lord and Savior. This is a decision no one can make for you. God has no grandchildren. As my dad is fond of saying, he only has children. There was one time when I was, um, well, I think it's been multiple times now that it's happened, but there was one time when I was getting into my van when I was working at Guiding Light Mission, 
And someone asked my dad if he was my brother. And uh, he said, well, I'm his dad. But we are brothers in Christ. Because as I said, God has no grandchildren. And I'm thankful that my parents are my parents. And I love them very much and thankful for all the sacrifices they made on my behalf. But I'm also thankful that they'll be going to heaven with me because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we were able to sit under the sound of it today. And I pray that you would bless it to us. I pray now that as we go our separate ways, that you would make your face shine upon us and give us peace. Pray all these things in the name of the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.